Welcome to Sermons from San Diego, a podcast of preaching at Mission Hills United Church of Christ. I'm the Reverend Dr. David Barr, but please just call me David. I invite you to listen and come along as we try to follow the teachings of Jesus and the wisdom of Scripture to build a world that is open, inclusive, just, and compassionate. And now for this week's sermon, continuing in our series. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's sons. These were the stories leading up to Pharaoh putting Joseph in charge of saving Egypt from a seven-year famine. But a new Pharaoh came to power who somehow, perhaps conveniently, did not know Joseph, or how he was responsible for making Egypt a very wealthy country, the global superpower of its time. Pharaoh tried to convince his nation that a a group of peaceful immigrants living among them, the descendants of Joseph and his brothers, were, quote, dangerous. With ever-escalating cruelty, he tried to crush them with increasingly brutal workloads and ultimately turned them into slaves. But nothing, as much as he tried, could break them. He kept plotting, and then he ordered midwives to kill boys as soon as they were born, but they cleverly disobeyed Pharaoh. And since that didn't work, he he simply commanded all Egyptians to throw any newborn Hebrew boys into the Nile River. Into the middle of all this, a woman gave birth to a healthy, beautiful baby boy. When she could no longer hide him, she came up with an ingenious plan. She put him in a basket and let it float down the Nile River right by where Pharaoh's daughter was known to bathe somehow hoping that the daughter of the man who decreed the death of such babies would look inside and feel compassion. And she did. Then they planned for the baby's sister to just happen to walk by and offer to, quote, find a woman who could nurse the baby. The pharaoh's daughter agreed, and she even offered to pay that woman, the the baby's actual mother. I, I just love this. It's such a delicious story, a scheme. Well, Pharaoh's daughter named the boy Moses, and when he was no longer nursing, adopted him as her own son. Moses, the son of slaves, grew up with all the opulent wealth and privilege one could imagine in the house of the man who decreed his death for being one of those dangerous people. As a child, Moses couldn't have possibly wanted for anything. That all changed one day, though. One day he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. How aware might he have been about his heritage? Had he been taught that he was the son of slaves? Did he know that he was somehow different than the woman he knew as mother? In an instant, something rose up within him. Whether he was conscious of it or not, He identified with the man being beaten and felt moved to act. He looked around to make sure no one was looking, and then he killed that Egyptian and hid him in the sand until he could come back the next day. But that next day, he couldn't do anything about the body because two Hebrew men were over there fighting. When Moses asked why they were fighting, They replied, what business is it of yours? Are you going to kill us too? Oh, busted. If you've ever done something you shouldn't, 
and thought you had gotten away with it, having breathed a sigh of relief. Well, upon being caught, you know how your face immediately turns red, and your heart beats a million miles a minute, and you almost black out as your mind races through all the options available. What can I do? But it's too late to do anything. And so your choices are to confess or run. Well, there's lying too, lots and lots of lying, but Moses ran, and he ran even harder when he heard that Pharaoh had found out and was now looking for him. And it wasn't to listen to his side of the story, but to kill him. Moses ran and ran and ran until he reached, reached the land of Midian. Now, Midians were sort of like maybe seventh cousins. So, interesting story. Moses was a descendant of Abraham through his wife, Sarah, a story we know quite well. But did you know that Sarah died and then Abraham married another woman? Keturah. They had seven more sons, one of whom was named Midian. So there's kind of a family connection, but it's so distant hundreds of years before that they, they don't really feel like family, but they are family enough to take you in or at least let you stay around. Maybe put a tent up in the backyard. Well, one day Moses was sitting by a well and seven women came by. They were the daughters of the priest of Midian. They came to draw water for their father's herd of animals. It wasn't like they were there to get a cool drink of well water to quench your thirst on a hot day. But imagine having to pull enough water out of the ground to quench the thirst of an entire herd of animals, one bucket at a time. Just then a bunch of shepherds came by and harassed the women and tried to chase them away from the well. Moses stepped in and chased the shepherds away instead, but the, and then he went and finished the job for the women. Now the story claims that he did this faster than seven women, which I find hard to believe, but is a setup for what comes at next. Because the women arrived home earlier than usual and their father asked why. And they explained about the rude shepherds and that an Egyptian man had chased, chased them away. And that he finished drawing the water for the animals for them. Now the grandfather overheard this and exclaimed, Why in the world didn't you invite him home to eat with us? So Moses was quickly summoned. And then never left. He worked for the family as a shepherd and in stark contrast to all the wealth and opulence of his youth, he slowly settled into a very quiet, normal life. As the years went by, he married one of the daughters, Zipporah, and had children, one of whom was named Gershom, which means I've been an immigrant living in a foreign land. A long time passed, and the Pharaoh who wanted to kill Moses died. Egypt had a new king, but the people continued to suffer just as much groaning, crying out to be rescued from their suffering. And then the text says, God heard their grief, and God remembered. Such a curious statement. God remembered. God remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked at the Israelites and understood. So God heard, God remembered, and God understood that something had to be done. 
up to this point, God has been a creator, a supreme being capable of speaking, and oceans would appear, and kittens and watermelons and everything good, and a few annoyances too. God would speak and the sky would be instantly formed above. And then God began an experiment called humans, who defied and disappointed and disgusted God on a regular basis. Over the, over the years when, when God overheated, a few people had success, succeeded at changing God's mind, calming God down when tempted to rage over his experiment gone awry. One time, however, God was so sick and tired of humankind that a 40-day flood was ordered to start over again. But with Rainbow, God promised never to do so again. Now, you do know that these are not actual events, but they are true stories in the sense that they teach meaning. The point, God was like a distant star who at times came closer to communicate directly or through dreams or through angels who served as messengers. Not exclusively, but God was mostly an otherworldly deity to be respected, to whom humans were to worship and show gratitude for life. It was in the background. But then something new came, a moment when God heard and was moved by their cries, remembered their covenant, covenant, and then understood something had to be done. And so this previously otherworldly deity, somewhat aloof and prone to anger, well, God in this moment was moved to personally get involved. How? One day Moses was out doing what Moses did every day, taking care of his father's father-in-law's sheep. It was a little further away than usual, all alone at the edge of the desert next to a mountain. And he came upon a bush that was burning, but not burning up. Now how weird is that? So he went over to look more closely, and out from that weird bush came something even stranger a voice calling his name and introducing itself. And scripture says, Moses, quote, was afraid. <laughs> no kidding. Well, this disembodied voice explained that the people to whom Moses belonged were still being oppressed as slaves and said, I know about their pain. This is a bush speaking, by the way. I've come down to rescue them. So get going. I'm sending you. Wait, what? God's, God's great plan to get personally involved is to send someone else to do it. Now, understandably, Moses protested. What does your coming to rescue them have to do with me? Your God, I have a job and a family to feed and offered a bunch of very other rational and good reasons why he was not suited to the task. He had five reasons to be exact. God listened to each objection and had something to say. Not to refute it, but to repeat, I will help you. First objection. Who am I to do this? Don't worry, I'll be with you. Second objection. What am I supposed to say if they ask your name? So God said, nice to meet you, Moses. My name is I Am. Third objection, Moses said, but people won't believe me. 
And so this is a fun one. God taught Moses three party tricks. God asks, what is in your hand? And Moses replied, a shepherd's rod. Throw it on the ground. He did, and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back from it, but God said, pick it up. And it turned back into a rod. Now God said, do that and people will believe. Next trick, put your hand inside your coat. Moses did, and when he took his hand out, it had a skin disease like flaky snow. God said, put your hand back inside and pull it back. No skin disease. God said, do that. People will believe. Third trick, pour some water from the Nile River on the ground. And he did, and it turned to blood on dry God, on the ground. And God said, do that. And people will believe. And that's how God addressed Moses' third objection. Now, I don't like that story. I don't love the idea of God teaching cheap party tricks. But you know what? It makes a good story. And what it really does is show that God is trying really, really hard. So the fourth objection. But I'm a terrible speaker. Now, the Bible says that Moses had a speech impediment. So God said, again, I really mean this. I will help you. I'll teach you what to say. So having run out of excuses, Moses' fifth objection was simply, just send someone else. By this time, God was growing tired of his obstinance. And so, like any exasperated parent to a demanding child, here, take a juice box. God took a breath, metaphorically, of course, and offered Moses a compromise. His brother Aaron could be the spokesperson for Moses, as long as Moses was the spokesperson for God. Deal? Now off you go, and don't forget to take your shepherd's rod so you can show off your tricks. And with that, Moses went back to his father-in-law and told him he needed to return to Egypt to check on his family and see whether they are still living. And off the whole family went. But before they arrived, there's one more incident, absolutely bizarre and quite hard to explain. It's a few verses tucked in, such that you almost wonder if a monk one day was having a little fun to see if anyone would notice. So starting at verse 24 in chapter 4 of Exodus. During their journey back to Egypt, as they camped overnight, the Lord met Moses and, quote, tried to kill him. His wife jumped into action and cut off the foreskin of their son with a sharp-edged flint knife and touched it to Moses' genitals. And so the Lord left them alone. Gross and way too personal. And scholars have a really hard time with that one, so I prefer my explanation that a monk was trying to have a little fun by shocking us. And with that truly truly odd conclusion. Next week, they're in Egypt and begin the long process to convince Pharaoh, let my people go. Oh, there's so much to this story. I love the explanation of how God works in the world. <laughs> I've come down to rescue them, so I'm sending you. Lutherans have a great banner for this, God's work, our hands. Of course, God does promise to always be with us in doing it. 
And I love the image of the burning bush, which is really just an example that God might use anything to get our attention. But here's what spoke to me this week. Go through the hymn books of mainline Protestant Christians, and you'll see a lot of hymns sung about God. God's majesty and grace and power. The God who created oceans and skies, as well as sparrows and watermelons. Beautiful and sometimes a little detached. Mainline church music doesn't quite as often sing songs to God or prayer, prayers with God. And the same thing's true with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And for some, getting too personal might make us uncomfortable. As worship planners, we try to pay attention to a balance of praise and presence. After all, as Job asks, is not God beyond even the most distant star? But don't we also know that God is as close to us as our breathing? To pray with, not about, in our songs. I mean, really, think about when we what we need when life becomes a struggle. It's time to have a little talk with Jesus, not read about him in a creed. When your lows become a death valley, God doesn't watch us struggle from on high, but God walks alongside to strengthen us through the struggle. Like Moses, we are not alone. That is who our God is, that I'm with you. Now, how does God walk alongside us to strengthen us through the struggle? Well, this is the part. Through the person sitting next to you. Just like we are for the person sitting next to us. Or walking past on the street and at the next desk. This is our God who says, I know about their pain and I've come down to rescue them. So get going. I'm sending you.